This is The Guardian. The Bank of England has warned that its emergency pension fund bailout can't continue beyond this Friday. Sterling fell sharply in response, and once again, the markets are in turmoil. But the government says it's not their fault. Are you saying that what is happening on the markets, the turmoil in the last three weeks, is not that serious? No, I'm saying it's primarily caused by interest rate differentials rather than by the fiscal announcement. And how does the Prime Minister think it's all going down with the country? Mr Speaker, I think the last thing we need is a general election. So is Liz Truss going to have to bin her mini-budget? And if so, what's left of her big political project? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political reporter Peter Walker and columnist Raphael Baer. Hello, both. Hello, Hello, Gabby. So the key question of the week is obviously, have you got the central heating on yet, or are you uh, listening to this from inside a sleeping bag? Raph, how cold is it in your house at the moment? Uh, well, I live in quite a new built house, so it's well insulated and the boiler has not yet come on, except obviously to wash. I do wash in hot water, but no, the central heating has not yet come on. Uh, and and so far, uh, my my sort of toe, fingers and toes haven't dropped off. So I'm feeling quite smug about that. I'm glad to know you wash. That's always very, very relieving. For the... <laughs> I didn't tell you how often I wash. No, no, no. Wash. It's not that kind of podcast. What about you, Peter? <laughs> Ice inside the windows, Jay uh, Walker? Or... I live in a flat, which is warm in some ways, but it's got those kind of 30s metal crittle windows, which let out a vast amount of heat. So I'm occasionally turning on the heating for 15 minutes just to give myself a, a feeling of what it's like. Um, but I was so frugal that last month my gas bill was £4.54. You smug beast, both of you. The reason I'm asking you, French politicians have been trying to lead by example um, over the last few days on energy reduction. President Macron is now wearing a polo neck under his suit and his prime minister has a sort of padded gilet, apparently. Sorry. Macron needs absolutely no incentive, no sort of encouragement. <laughs> of course, he's wearing a polo neck. What else would he wear? Our equivalent is definitely like, you know, massive cardigan and some kind of gardening trousers. But yes. So today we'll be talking first about Liz Truss and the pressure she's under to reverse her economic plans. And then as Labour rides high in the polls, how do they keep it that way? But first off, it's just 19 days since the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, unveiled his tax slashing, big borrowing, high stakes plan for economic growth. Under pressure from the markets, the International Monetary Fund, Tory backbenchers and in some cases cabinet colleagues, he's already been forced to drop one key plank of it, the abolition of the 45p tax rate. But that wasn't enough to calm the markets. Last week, he brought forward a key statement on spending meant to show the government does have a plan to pay for its remaining tax cuts. Here's the Chancellor on Tuesday insisting the markets wouldn't be spooked by his Halloween budget. It will be relentlessly uh, upbeat. Um, it, they are challenging times, but we've got to live within our means and there will be an absolute uh, iron commitment to fiscal responsibility. Now, that wasn't enough to reassure the markets either. On Tuesday, Sterling nosedived again after Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England, ruled out extending an emergency package of support for jittery bond markets beyond this Friday. Peter, what's going on here? What, what message are the, the markets trying to send the government? Why aren't they reassured? It's a whole raft of things. There was a really interesting hearing of five economic experts before the Treasury Select uh, Committee just before we recorded this. And the kind of message was, you know, yes, there are global factors at play, 
But because we're in this quite tricky global state, anything that a domestic government do has the potential to cause more damage than it might otherwise. And, you know, obviously the big thing is that they've announced these unfunded tax cuts with no certainly short to medium term way to pay for them. But the other thing which I think is quite interesting is this idea of dispensing with the Office for Budget Responsibility, sacking the lead Treasury civil uh, servant, you know, in your first day in the job, all that kind of stuff is making the markets think that you're this kind of, you know, wayward person, which obviously Trust and Quartin think they are, which in political terms, in political opposition in particular, is quite a good thing to do. You know, you're a disruptor, you break things. But markets don't really like that, seemingly. <laughs> Turns out we've broken the market. Exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, it does, it can feel all a bit abstract, all this talk of, you know, markets going up and down, looking at graphs of, of sterling. Raf, what does it what does it mean for all of us at home on a most basic level? What are the consequences if you've got a mortgage or you've got a pension, you're coming up to retirement age? Well, well, the crucial point is uh, is interest rate rises, uh, the, the base rate of the Bank of England having to put interest rates up um, because, well, for two reasons, essentially, but uh, to mainly to to now to protect the currency, uh, when that falls against the dollar and the euro, uh, and also as a measure to try and contain inflation. And essentially, um, anyone who's not on a fixed rate mortgage, the percentage that they're having to pay back each month, their repayments will more or less go up tracking uh, that Bank of England base rate. So ultimately, you know, there are millions of people who either already on variable rate mortgages or they come to the end of their fixed rate and their monthly repayments could now go up by a very substantial amount. And, you know, we know we've discussed many times on this podcast, the cost of living crisis. You know, that means what thin margin people had to sort of heat their homes or fill their fridges uh, might be gone. Uh, and that is going to make a lot of people who have mortgages feel very poor. From a lot of people, the cost of that will easily outweigh any benefit they get from any of the tax cuts uh, that were introduced in that famous and notorious fiscal statement by the Chancellor two weeks ago. Hmm. Also pretty anxious times, I guess, for anyone who's coming up to retirement and trying to work out what might have happened to their their pension fund over the last few days. I mean, the interesting thing about that is these are key Tory voters, aren't they? I mean, you're talking about homeowners and older people coming up to retirement age, Peter. They they couldn't be sort of more core to the Tory vote in many ways. This is it. And this is why it's such a baffling thing. I mean, the political reaction to it has been worse than they could have possibly imagined. And there is a worry, certainly amongst a lot of Conservative MPs, that in a matter of a month, they've shattered what reputation the Conservative still, Party still had for being the better party to manage the uh, economy. And the polling seems to show that. The polling seems to show now that Labour and Keir Starmer are trusted much more. And that's really crucial. As a Tory party, if you don't have that going into a general election, then things are looking, looking pretty desperate, really. I mean, there's the old joke of the two people walking in the woods uh, and they see a bear and one of them starts running away and the other guy goes, well, you'll never outrun a bear. And he says, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> um, and that's that, that's sort of the situation when you know, there are there's general anxiety in the global economy. If the UK among G7 countries is seen as the sort of the slowest guy in the forest when the bear market comes along then you get eaten first uh, and that's the great concern i think that you know, for quite a long time british politics looked a bit unstable and brexit was sort of a stupid idea you know for a lot to, to in the eyes of a lot of sort of rational investors uh, and uk policy was based around kind of fiction and fantasy economics but there was a limit to it and then when liz truss and quasi quarteng come in and, and sort of say well we're going to just going to 
push all the dials on bluff and fantasy sort of right to 11 uh, <laughs> and see what happens. Um, it, eventually, the, the, you know, what's left of the confidence just goes. And that's very, very hard to rebuild. And then you're in the business of basically trying to outrun the bond market. And the bond market will, will call every bluff. It's always the bigger bear. Yeah, I just I wondered as well if I mean, I was struck by the fact that Bailey made such a very public statement about his intentions. I mean, presumably, if he wants to tell pension funds what he's doing, you know, he doesn't have to announce it via the global media. He can talk directly to to pension funds. And I wondered if by making such a big public statement, it's almost trying to nudge politicians as well. There's a sense of, look, we've done what we can do. We are trying to fix what is essentially a political problem using economic means. It really felt like he was kind of handing stuff over to the Treasury at that point? I think there is. I think there's a lot of hints going on from both the institutions and also from Conservative MPs that the course needs to be changed. There's also the slightly worrying kind of nagging doubt that perhaps even the Bank of England don't quite know what they're doing because their messaging has been quite mixed. There was this strange thing on uh, Tuesday night into Wednesday when the Financial Times front page changed about four in the morning because basically the Bank of England was saying one thing, which basically you've got three days to sort it out, pension funds, then we're gone. And then as they realised they'd potentially spark panic, they were saying, "Ah, actually, no, when we say we're gone, we're not actually gone. So, I mean, I'm not quite sure who you can actually put your trust in now. The Bank of England is in a terrible position because it has been essentially the world's biggest sort of market sort of buyer of, of gilts of UK government debt through the quantitative easing period. They had been lining up this moment where they were going to do a full 180 degree turn in that policy and essentially become a, a huge seller of gilts. And then they suddenly, because of this, this sort of fiscal blow up from the government, they now can't do that. So their entire monetary strategy, everything that had been, they'd been sort of working towards for months has is now completely irrelevant uh, or not irrelevant, but certainly can't be applied. And they have no idea what monetary policy is because the government has no idea what fiscal policy is. The UK has no econ- macroeconomic policy at this moment. It's not a healthy situation. I'd actually argue it's got several. <laughs> so all competing with each other, all fighting with each other. I mean, it does look to me like Liz Truss is increasingly boxed in. You've got, on the one hand, markets are very clearly saying to her, if you want tax cuts, show us how you'll pay for them, you know, find some spending cuts. But when she's tried to find those cuts by floating the idea of uprating benefits in line with earnings, not inflation or whatever. She's met stiff resistance within the cabinet, never mind backbenchers. It's looking increasingly like she's got nowhere to turn. You know, the markets won't let her do what she wants to do. Tory MPs won't let her row back. I mean, do you see a way out of this kind of conundrum for her? As the other old joke goes, you know, the best we're out of here is not to start from where we are now. <laughs> she's a bit stuffed and there is... A kind of plan, if you could dignify it with that name, starting to emerge in that at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, Truss was asked whether she was about to cut uh, her spending plans to try and balance the books a bit. And then she quite unexpectedly said, well, no, we're, we're not going to do that. So, yeah, Liz Truss was asked, Keir Starmer asked um, her very specifically uh, at Prime Minister's questions if she stood by her pledge not to cut public spending. And this is what she said. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Mr Speaker, we are spending we are spending almost a trillion pounds of public spending. We were spending 700 billion back in 2010. What we will make sure is that over the medium term the debt is falling. But we will do that 
not by cutting public spending, but by making sure we spend public money well. On the face of it, that was surprising. You know, she doesn't have spending cuts. How can she have tax cuts? But what she said was quite carefully worded, wasn't it, Rafa? She left herself some, some wiggle room there. Well, what she said was that the overall level of, of public spending um, you know, won't be cut. But of course, that includes this extraordinarily vast amount of money they've already committed to spending and supporting energy bills. Uh, and that's a very open ended commitment. So sort of depending on how you sort of where you draw your horizon, you can say net spending hasn't gone down because you know, they're borrowing billions and you're trying to trying to sort of subsidize people's gas bills. But you still have fiscal rules that mean that in other areas of you know Whitehall budgets still have to be cut and services still have to be paired back. So it, it's what she wasn't saying is there won't be any more public sector austerity. Um, so there is a sort of she can what she can say could be technically true, but politically dishonest. Also, she could. I mean, it struck me that, for example, the benefit cut, if you're saying we'll only uprate benefits in line with with earnings, not inflation. Well, that's not technically a cut. It's just it's going to feel like one. Chris Philp, the Treasury number two, went a bit further than that. Um, immediately after PMQs, he was answering a Labour urgent question. And he seemed to say there'd be no cuts in real terms which means that, you know, benefits would have to rise in line with inflation. However, Raf's point about, you know, is this the overall cake? So you could say overall public spending has gone up by inflation plus 1%. However, if you take into account the feelable stuff, then other things could be paired back. And, and that's not very clear. One other key question that Keir Starmer asked her at, at PMQs, um, which I want to, to bring in now, and it's, it's, it goes to the heart of this, which is, you know, is a logical conclusion that actually she can't have those those tax cuts. She, she's going to have to drop them. That seems to be what Labour thinks. Anyway, that's, here's what uh, Keir Starmer said to her. Everyone can see what has happened. The Tories went on a borrowing spree, sending mortgage rates through the roof. They are skyrocketing by £500 a month. And for nearly two million homeowners, their fixed rate deals are coming to an end next year. They're worried sick, and everybody in this house knows it. They won't forgive. They won't forget, and nor should they. When will she stop ducking responsibility, do the right thing, and reverse her kamikaze budget, which is causing so much pain? Talking to Labour shadow cabinet ministers they seem to think that you know the government can certainly be pushed into retreat a bit you, Tory MPs you'll be picking the same thing up are starting to to wonder if if the budget survives Raf do you think she is going to end up having to dump the budget or parts of it well certainly the the story of her brief time as <laughs> both a an actual Tory leader and a prospective Tory leader has been U-turns. I mean, yeah, let's not forget she went into the Tory leadership contest saying no handouts. She wasn't going to do, you know, any intervention really to to subsidise energy bills. And and now it's the sort of biggest fiscal uh, intervention in modern British history. Uh, and you know, on on a Sunday before Tory conference, there was no U-turn on the forty five p tax rate. By midnight, there was. So, you know, certainly she's not allergic to the U-turn. But there comes a point where if you start to jettison too much of it, uh, then there is literally nothing left of your entire economic strategy. The alternative is that you sort of you you, you somehow make quasi quarting the scapegoat for this and say, well, he mishandled it and the communications was terrible and the strategy was wrong. So we're going to have to sort of do a tactical retreat on some of these tax cuts. Oh, and the chancellor's sacked. But then how do you replace him? I mean, there really is no good outcome here for her. It's very hard to see uh, how she navigates through this now with both her big economic strategy and plan 
intact, her cabinet still full of people of her choosing and a party that can be governed. I don't see how those things happen. Also, they were so close, Aaron Kwarteng. I mean, that's the whole point of why he was chosen a chancellor, because they agree, you know, they were as one on this kind of this strategy. It's her strategy as much as it's, it's his. Is there a way of, of getting around it? Do you think, Peter, by sort of maybe delaying some of those? So we're still going to do the tax cuts, but two years down the road. As far as I can understand the way things are now, they're going to try and slightly brazen it out by... Um, keeping public spending more or less where it is now, not reversing any of the tax cuts, and basically saying to the markets, yes, borrowing is going to go up for the next three or four years, but then we'll start to cut it, you know, year four or five, by which point anyone with half political brain will say, well, you know, it won't be your problem. Be the next government. She looked, I have to say, surprisingly perky to me in the circumstances. I mean, you'd expect her to come to sort of Prime Minister's questions looking a little bit beaten up and as if she hadn't slept, but she looked really quite pleased with herself. <laughs> it was, whereas Penny Morden looked like she'd, you know, sort of woken up and seen a ghost. But it was, it was interesting that you always get that kind of cheer from government MPs when the Prime Minister walks into the room. And under Johnson, they always used to be quite loud, even though they were quite desperate towards the end. But when she walked in, it's like a kind of Hey, it was like this kind of half-hearted thing. And, you know, you don't want to read too much into it. I was listening to it on the TV rather than in the chamber. But but the Conservative benches after PMQs emptied really, really quickly. When Chris Philp was answering this urgent question, within about 20 minutes, it was entirely Labour, Lib Dem and SNP asking questions because there are no Tory MPs left which is, I always think, quite an interesting sign. Yeah, I agree. The P- Penny Morden was very funny because she was basically wearing the exact face that Nick Clegg used to wear. In <laughs> oh, of sat next to David sad Cameron. Nick Clegg. <laughs> just a sort of, just a, why am I here? What is this I'm watching? Why, this Who are is, these people? Yeah, what's that weird smell? And why can't I get out of this room fast enough? It was it was sadly entertaining. Why have my life choices led me to this? <laughs> I think it was, it was Bill Clinton's election guru, James Carver, wasn't it? He once said that if he was reincarnated, he'd like to come back as the bond markets because they can basically intimidate everybody I mean it it might be me I'd I'd feel a tiny bit uneasy here about it it essentially feels like the market's calling the shots dictating what can and can't be in the budget at the moment the markets seem to be the only ones sort of grown-ups in the room to some extent they're making sensible interventions but is there a question here about markets aren't elected you know and they are at this point effectively dictating where the budget process goes does that make you feel at all uneasy I mean, I think it does, but no more than it does in the kind of general context of policies all the time. Because we do, for better or worse, live in this very interconnected capitalist system whereby uh, the currency markets and the bond markets and the debt markets and all other markets have a big say on how government policy works. And I think if you're a conservative government, particularly one that's basically come from these free market think tanks, which are entirely market based, then being adversely judged by the markets is probably worse than it is for a Labour government. And, and you know, is it a issue overall? You know, yes, it is, but it's a much, much bigger question than one that just affects the trust government. But this degree of conflict between markets and governments is really unusual, isn't it, Raph? I mean, what, what's, what's gone wrong? It feels like someone somewhere is not, you know, is there not enough communication between the Treasury and the city? Why didn't they anticipate the reactions they're getting because each time they seem to be surprised you know that sterling tanks and I, I yeah i think it's it's an expression of very very deep complacency about the kind of country that britain is um, because what is it, what has happened is the uk government quasi quoting is now in a position as a finance minister uh 
of a country being treated by the bond market the way Greece was during the euro crisis. And Kwasi Kwarteng, a former Etonian, Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United Kingdom, does not think that Britain is like Greece. He thinks it's a different kind of country altogether. And it, just the penny hasn't dropped. The, the bond market doesn't care. <laughs> like If you behave in a way that means that your economic policy is not credible. And again, I, you know, I said it before, but it's definitely bears repeating. After many years in which your, your fundamental approach to diplomacy, strategy and economic policy has been founded on a bit of a delusional fantasy anyway in the form of Brexit, that's how you're going to be treated. And I just don't think they realise that. And it, it, I think they still haven't properly clocked that that is the kind of country they have made Britain and they need to totally recalibrate their approach uh, in response to that. Talking of what they haven't haven't clocked, I mean, obviously the best hope of of getting out of a, in a hole when you're in one is is to learn from your mistakes. But sending Jacob Rees-Mogg out to answer your critics doesn't necessarily feel as if they've taken the right lesson. Let's just play you a pretty uh, jaw-dropping clip from uh, the Today programme. What, what, what has caused um, the effect in uh, pension funds because of some quite um, high-risk but low-probability investment strategies is not necessarily the mini-budget. It could just as easily be the fact that the day before, the Bank of England did not raise interest rates as much uh, as the Federal Reserve did. And I think jumping to conclusions about causality uh, is not meeting the BBC's requirement for impartiality. It is a commentary uh, rather than uh, a factual question. There you go. So the fact that uh, Sterling tanked the, uh, the day after the mini budget and the fact that the IMF and the Bank of England have all indicated that this might have something to do with government policy. It's just a total total coincidence. Just had just happened the same day. Does that sound to you like a government that gets where it's gone wrong? I mean, there's two answers. In general terms, the government doesn't seem to have got it. And in particular terms, Jacob Rees-Mogg arguably never seems to get it. Uh, I almost wonder if he is sometimes sent out on the broadcast round with a kind of semi-serious mission of just creating some noise, of just saying something really stupid that dominates the kind of morning headlines and then you can move on to something different because he almost always says something awkward or silly and perhaps the calculation genuinely is that this is you know, good in the long term or it could just be that he's incredibly complacent and doesn't understand the media and just keeps on getting it wrong. And it's, I'll, I'll leave it up to listeners to decide. Is it, I mean, is this sustainable for the next two years, Raph? Are we, are we heading for an early election at this rate? It doesn't feel to me like we can do two years of this. Well, sort of both things can be true. It can be completely unsustainable, but somehow sort of drag on for much longer than anyone thinks possible. I mean, it See is the a last two of, governments. How do you get to an election? MPs could vote for one. Um, yeah, if, if there's a vote of no confidence, then enough Tory MPs decide that they want to give up being MPs. They could do that. But why would they do that? They lose their salaries. You know, they lose their jobs. Um, uh, Liz Truss could decide to throw it all in. Uh, you know, the king could just decide to dissolve Parliament. Cool. Like, you know, he's King Charles. It's, it's, it's in the brands. Charles I did it. It didn't end very well for him. So but, you know, realistically, you know, it, it, it's the opposition that wants an election. They don't get to call one. Um, so, you know, I think there is probably some grind left in this before it, it reaches that. Slightly different circumstances, but I mean, we're old enough to remember the mid 90s, you know, the, the Labour were ahead. We were on sort of 50 percent in the polls in 1995 and they didn't have an election until 1997. OK, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to be looking at the Labour Party high in the polls. But how do they keep up the momentum?
Welcome back. So talking as we were of of early elections, Labour has made a big deal of going on to a war footing this week with some personnel changes in the leader's office. Peter, tell me a bit about what's changed and what effects that's going to have. Is it a bit of slight reshuffling of deck chairs or is it more important than that? I think it's a mixture of things. It's partly structural things that they wanted to do for a while, easing one or two people out and getting other people in. Also, I think there is this very, very genuine feeling that they have to be ready for it. But also they have to be seen to be ready for it because... One of the kind of defining features of the Labour conference was shadow ministers and Labour MPs saying it's great that the trust government is doing so badly and we're benefiting from it, but that potentially might not be enough. We have to show a presentable case for it. And, you know, who knows, maybe they don't. Maybe the trust government will be so bad that just being slightly boring and competent will be enough to get them over the line. But there's a lot of anxiety amongst Labour MPs that they haven't yet presented their alternative case. So this feels to me to be part of that next stage, which has always been long planned and certainly quite a lot of Labour MPs thought should have happened maybe a year earlier where, you know, the curtain is pulled back and here's Keir in his evening suit saying, here's what I present to you as a nation, not just aren't the other lot rubbish, which is also true. Keir Stom has really had to learn on the job. I mean, leader of the opposition is a hard gig in politics, but also... He doesn't have that much experience of campaigning politics. Uh, you know, he got a safe seat. Mm-hmm. He's not you know, at the beginning. Certainly, a lot of you know, MPs, even people who quite supported him and quite liked his politics, said he wasn't really political enough. Uh, he doesn't look like he enjoys campaigning. Doesn't enjoy the campaign trail. He more or less said during the leadership contest that he won. That that wasn't his favourite bit of politics, uh, and that I think is a problem. He has to look like he's got a, that particular kind of fight that turns the day-to-day grind of politics into campaign success. It does look to me like there's a bit more edge to this team and there's, there's, there's more power to, to Morgan McSweeney, who's probably best known to most people for having run Liz Kendall's campaign for leader. You know, there's a certain, and, and Mariana McFadden as well, Pat McFadden's um, wife is sort of in the ascendancy. It, does look like a, it looks a little bit more like the team that, that won for New Labour, perhaps, than it's, it did in the past. It's partly got that. And I think you cannot get away from this never-ending project of not necessarily of Keir Starmer but of some people around him of making sure the left of the party are completely crushed and have no return whatsoever which is this kind of never-ending hobby stroke battle and every move within that is certainly you know can be seen this this one less through that prism but there's a sense of Starmer wanting to get the right people around him and the right people around him seem to be from this particular wing of the party. But then if, if you're going to do this, you have to do it now, basically. You have to be ready. So as, as Ruff was saying, they now have a well-established poll lead. You know, Do those kind of leads indicate that people are actively voting for the Labour Party now rather than simply expressing disquiet with the current government? Do you think they've moved? There's a kind of sea change that happens when people are not just kind of irritated with whoever's in power, but actively enthusiastic about you. Do you think Labour's at that point now? I'm not sure those poll leads express a sort of active, positive enthusiasm for the idea of a Labour government and for making Keir Starmer prime minister. But nor is it just protest or any or a kind of a midterm disillusionment with the Tories. I mean, and the the reason I say that those two things might sound like they contradict each other. But what does appear to have happened, and I hear this from MPs and from pollsters and anecdotally as well for what what it's worth, is that a lot of lifelong Tories are very angry with the Conservative Party just for the general mess and the shambles. And that, you know, that's a feeling that was very strong among 
those uh, quite important Tory segment that voted Remain uh, in 2016 and were a bit wary of Boris Johnson and they sort of voted, they they switched to the Lib Dems in some by-elections. That, that sort of sort of slightly blarier end of the Tory vote, for want of a better word, the Cameron end of it, they are now absolutely done with the Tories. Uh, and the other thing that I think is quite important to pick up here is that un- beneath the sort of bonnet of the polling, you have a very strong lead now for Labour also on specifically who would be better at running the economy uh, and who would be the better Prime Minister, Keir Starmer or, or Liz Truss. And those two things are much better indicators over time of which party ends up winning a general election than just which party has the headline lead. It's the economy and leadership. Those two things, if you've got a strong lead in those, you go on to win generally. And there's also more direct ev- more evidence now of direct switching from Tory to Labour, which is which is interesting. That's the bit that we haven't seen for a while. But it does, I mean, for a lot of Labour MPs, it feels like this is the first time they really actually believe they could win rather than just having to say so when everyone sticks a microphone under their nose. But I don't see them kind of relaxing or throwing caution to the winds, if anything, you know, the opposite almost. At the Labour conference in Liverpool the other week, they were not relaxed at all. They were quite kind of buoyant. And it was amazing the number of people, you know, you ask, do you think you can win it next time? They go, for the first time, yes, I think we can. But there's this real anxiety which kind of manifested itself in kind of two ways, one of which is just this kind of sense of doom. You know, at least two people said to me, if we don't win this election, next election, we might as well give up. You know, we might as well just pack up the party and kind of, I don't know, go and form a circus or something because the the terrain could not be better for them to fight on. But the other one is this kind of historic anxiety too. Again, more than one MP said to me, I really, really hope it's 1996, but I desperately worry it's 1991. Because obviously before John Major's 92 victory, Labour had been well ahead in the polls and there was a period when it seemed likely that they were going to win the election and they just didn't. It really haunts them, doesn't it, in that sense? It was the election What's they should have won. Desperately, it's like yeah. a family tragedy. But it's, I was trying to work out why it feels different to me from 1997. And the big difference is, I think, because 1996, 97, incredibly sort of hopeful optimistic you know yes the country was in a state but things can always get better ta-da. you know and and it doesn't quite feel like that now it feels a lot darker and actually it's the difference was you know then the economy was growing in 1996 it was five years on from black wednesday when they were elected you know public services were falling apart but there was there was money to fix it it does feel different now you know the sense you get the sense that if Labour came to power now, it would be inheriting some pretty scorched earth. And, and Keir Starmer seems to have started gently managing expectations down already. This is what he had to say in his, his party conference speech about what uh, what sort of kind of state the country might be in um, if Labour came to inherit it. But we have to be honest. I would love to stand here and say Labour will fix everything. But the damage they've done to our finances and our public services means this time the rescue will be harder than ever. It will take investment. Of course it will. But it will also take reform. It sounds like he's asking Labour voters to be patient, not expect too much. But can they really hold that line, Ralph? I mean, it's been 12 years of waiting for a Labour government. People may not be willing to wait that much longer. I think it will be incredibly difficult. I agree with you that I don't think if you do have a Labour government in 2024 or before 2023, uh, you know, it won't feel quite like May the 1st, 1997, just because of the, the, the backdrop being so grim. But there will be a, a large store of goodwill. And one thing that I think does make it at least a little bit easier. I mean, I agree the fiscal situation could be an absolute nightmare. Uh, and so he obviously, Keir Starmer, does have to manage expectations. 
But it is notable how the converse, national conversation about tax has changed very substantially just in the last couple of years. Now, you know, when you've got Rishi Sunak over the summer making the case that we have to raise taxes, um, that, that is not where we were in 1991 and 1992. And, you know, you mentioned that very important election defeat for, for Neil Kinnock. Well, what did him in was being explicit about the fact that he wanted to raise taxes. Now, he wanted to raise taxes for a more you know, directly redistributive project rather than just to sort of shore up the country's financial credibility with the bond market. But even so, we are now in a position regarding a government saying, look, people are going to have to pay tax because we've got to finance some of this stuff. We've got to support everyone. Uh, that's uh, that's great terrain for Labour to make its argument on in a way that it hasn't been able to do for a generation. I mean, you do wonder, Peter, if sort of winning's almost the easy bit for Labour. Actually, governing is going to be a lot harder. Nice problem to have, obviously, but... It's, it's, it's true. And I, I, I was immediately struck sitting in the hall listening to summer speech that bit about it's not going to be uh, easy seemed to me to be the key part of the speech it was quite a way in but he was basically saying you know yes this is going to be tough I mean there's a lot of differences also from the kind of 96 97 thing that in 1996 it was seemed quite obvious that Labour were not only going to win but were going to win outright by quite some way and this time it's a lot more complicated you've got the SNP in Scotland so Labour won't have so many Scottish seats and these soft Tories who are peeling away the kind of more small L liberals, a lot of them live in seats where the Lib Dems are the kind of most likely other party to vote for. So it's perfectly possible that with the Conservatives doing badly and Labour doing well, the Lib Dems could pick up, I don't know, 20, 25 seats. So they could play a role too. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the more optimistic Labour MPs think they can win outright uh, the next election, but none of them are counting that. They always think it's possible they might need to get informal support from Lib Dems or SNP or possibly both. It's going to be quite complicated, even taken away from the fact that the economic, economic situation is going to be much more tough. History repeats itself, but never quite the same twice, maybe. <laughs> it's time to say goodbye. So thank you, both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I just want to turn your attention quickly to The Guardian Weekly magazine. As part of a limited time offer, we're giving 20% off annual subscriptions for the magazine. If you don't know it, The Guardian Weekly features a range of different perspectives from writers up and down the UK from across the political spectrum. You can find all the purchase details on this podcast page. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. See you next week. This is The Guardian. Guardian.